This podcast is a Tofop production. Head to tofop.com for more. The following episode of Tofop is rated MA for mature audiences. It may contain sexual references, time travel references, allegations of bin misconduct, and mild coarse language. Tofop advises that this episode is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who thinks a comedy conversation between two old mates sounds like a terrible idea for a show. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deke speaking. I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. Hello and thank you for watching. And uh, if you're watching the video of this on our Patreon, because uh, as you all know, full videos of Tofop go up every week on our Patreon, you might wonder if Will and I are in quarantine. <laughs> we are in separate <laughs> hotel rooms on separate parts of the country doing this show. No, that is not the case. Will has uh, been doing some gigs and I also am doing a gig this week. I'm in WA, Will. I have not been out here for five years or so. Fuck that flight is long. And it's very long with a toddler. <laughs> so, uh, how long is the flight to Western Australia? It's been so long since the four hours? From I flew from Brisbane, five, five and a half hours, from, Briz, yeah. from Brizzy. And also, I had to drive to Brisbane first. So, it was two hours in the car and then five and a half hours to, uh, to get to Perth. And I, like I, I feel jet-lagged, like properly jet-lagged. I woke up this morning with a headache and I think... I think it was headache not only from just like, you know, lack of sleep and all that kind of stuff, but... Got to find stuff to do on that flight. So I read, I read an entire book on the flight. But then I think having my head down like that, I mean, old man injuries are a favorite topic on Two Guys, One Cup. But I was saying, because I was complaining to Jem, I was like, oh, like behind my left eye, it's killing and my neck's sore and it's like my neck headache. And and she said, (laughs) yes. And she said, oh, she's gone, yeah, I see an osteo for that. It's because we, Mm. she's gone, you had your head down like this, reading your, your Kindle on the flight over. You've, it's a, and she yeah. pressed like this point in my neck and it was agony. Yeah. And she's like, oh yeah, that's exactly what happens to you me. You've got to get to the osteo because you read a book. <laughs> I've, got to go, I've read a book. Like, I thought I should be rewarded for doing something to like, you know, expand yeah. my mind. Learn well, you about know, some new ideas and concepts. Hurts, sure, it was set. your brain filled up a little bit and got heavier. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, it got all heavier. That, all that knowledge going in. Uh, uh, well, funnily enough, it, it, was, it was Seth Rogen's uh, memoir. Uh, 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 Seth Rogen, the actor, obviously, yeah. Pineapple Express yeah. guy. Um, did you, <laughs> that did you guy. read and, every line as if it was said like this? Well, I've got to admit, like, at first I'm like, mm. oh, I'm not sure I'm going to enjoy this memoir because he does write kind of like he talks, which is like, you know, it's sort of a lot of pop culture references and swearing and all that kind of stuff. And not necessarily like he's not a... He's not like a like a, a novelist or anything like that. It's just like it's Seth Rogen. But the amount of drug stories in this book, like, have you ever felt high just reading about someone getting high? Like, I was sort of getting like I was riding the waves of like each story because he tries lots of different. He's a big drag drug advocate, but he tells this one story about being on Amsterdam on mushrooms when he was like twenty years old, having this the most intense mushroom trip. And I was like getting like sympathetic kind of high off it. Like I started feeling like I was tripping a bit and he was talking yeah. about the sky turning purple and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh man, like I, I need to come down off this trip. Someone's got to bring, I need Gemma to talk me down off this book trip. Um, yeah, I get that. I, I, I can never remember what the plot of the movie Garden State is because there's a scene in that where they take ecstasy pretty early in that movie, I'm pretty sure. And... I only ever get as far as that. And then I'm like, oh, now I just want to take ecstasy. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to watch this dumb movie. Well, he, I want to take ecstasy. Well, he does sort of, it's interesting, like the amount, because I don't know, I, like, the way he sort of structures the, the memoir, it sort of jumps around from him being young and, you know, then his, all these Hollywood kind of anecdotes. And I kind of thought, oh, well, the, all the drug stuff will be confined to when mm. he was a younger man. But as he got more successful, the drug use seemed to kind of increase. And not in a drug abuse no, just kind in of way. The, He's just, you and can he, now he, afford he, more drugs. Afford more drugs and more interesting environments in which to take drugs. Like he tells this one story about... So you know the film The Interview? where yeah, the North uh, Korea... Uh, uh, the, the, so, 
Yeah, that's right. And how it got banned, that got pulled from cinemas and those death threats. And that's what actually led to the Sony hack is North Korea found out this film was going to come out with, you know, Kim Jong-un. And and so they hacked Sony's emails, even though six months earlier they did a risk assessment and this team came in and said to Sony, hey, North, we're seeing some rumbling about North Korea. Know you're making this film, so you should employ like yeah. extra cybersecurity. So Seth Rogen and his production team they did, and they weren't hacked. But Sony were like, yeah. oh, "I'm sure it'll be fine." We're Sony. And they were the ones. How could anybody had... possibly hack our yeah. emails? And how could we have anything that's incriminating if they do? <laughs> so he tells that story, and he talks about. So it was this major kind of you know, battle with the studio where the studio is like, you've got to take out all Kim Jong-un references. Cause in the, this movie that's about Kim Jong-un. Yeah. And which is clearly a satire, you know, and it's a comedy. Uh, and, and there's a, the moment which if spoilers for the interview, the Kim Jong-un dies at the end and they wanted to make it as over the top and satirical as possible. So it's quite a graphic, like head explosion scene where they hired like, you know, like a Stan Winston equivalent to come in and build this lifelike, replica of the actor's head and have it explode in layers you know skin and bone and then meat of the brain all this kind of stuff and the studio's like you can't put that in in fact can you just instead how about we just have like um flames come across the the camera so you can't sort of obscure so you can't see what's happening and and seth rogan's like well that doesn't make any sense at all like if you don't see kim jong-un die does that and the whole point of it and the reason that scene goes for 10 seconds it's it's meant to be over the top and ridiculous also it literally makes the entire point that this is not a real film yes like because guess what kim jong-un is still alive so spoilers (laughs) this is not a documentary and he's been played by randall park quite a famous american comedian like i think most people will be able to make the distinction Uh, hang on sorry my Uh, computer is telling me that it's running out of batteries so for those of you uh watching the full video uh this is will going to get his power cable you can see he's staying in quite a nice hotel some modern art on the windows Uh, a bit of light diffusion coming through there i'm going to say he's staying in the city, I would say. Not one of the kind of like Zhuzhia suburbs. I don't even know what state he's in. If I had to hazard a guess, I'd say it was uh, perhaps Queensland. I am in Queensland. And there, well, I don't know why. It just it looked like a Queensland uh, apartment building out your window. I am, yes. I am I am in Queensland. I've been doing shows here in Brisbane, election weekend shows. Did, did a show last night where I went on stage and the early polls were that the incumbents were doing quite well early on. Um, and I went on stage with that being very much like when, you know, you go on stage um, or go to do something and your football team is not doing very well in the first quarter. And you're just like, yeah. oh, this <sighs> might not be good. I probably, I won't even rush to check the result. And uh, of course, when you work in the arts, it's fair to say that a fair amount of the people who work around the arts, you know, the technicians and the people who help you put on the show, like very important people and people who, because when people talk about the arts, they always think, oh, you know, they're like, oh, fucking, I don't like that comedian, so I don't give a fuck about the arts or whatever. I don't like, I don't go to mm. plays. But like, mm. the arts aren't just the actors on stage. The arts are, or the singer on stage, or whatever it might be. It's the technicians that work at the venue and the people who collect the tickets and work at the concession stores and all those sort of things. They're all employed in the arts, and so. Look, there's one. There was one side of politics that doesn't give a fuck about the arts. It doesn't even have its own ministry. And there was another mm. side that is at least more sympathetic to the arts. So, around the venue with all the staff, when I went on stage, there was a real sort of "oh fuck, this is happening again" sort of vibe from everyone. Yeah. Like no one was in a good mood. And then when I walked off stage, I was like, I'm going to go and check, like you know, how the election's going. But I just got the sense from the way that everybody seemed to be about at least 10 centimetres taller than they were when I went on stage that things had turned around a little in the meantime. Everyone just seemed to be walking a little taller. Well, as the votes were getting counted, uh, the Saints were playing at the same time. And Gemini, you know, uh, Gemini both working in in WA this week. And so we thought, well, we'll do a family trip. We'll bring Iona, staying in a nice hotel. and, And last night we went out for dinner, a nice dinner. And it was meant to be like family time, but I really wanted to check the footy score. And the only way I could justify it was, oh, I'm checking the uh, the results of the election. But I would go off and watch like five minutes of footy and then come back and have to quickly check where the polling's at. So I'd come back and say, oh, yeah, it looks, yeah. Like, uh, looks like Labor's up. So things are all good. And then, then when I was going off again around about like, you know, 9.30, she's like, 
but they're pretty sure like Labor, they've got it secured. Like, no, 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 no. I'm pretty sure that uh, it's still up for grabs. I just want to make sure that that. <laughs> yeah, still got to go and. I've got some interest in the teal exactly. swing, so I've just got to go. And well, at one stage that. I had to go get nappies for Iona. We'd forgot to pack any, and so Jem had called uh, reception, and they said, "Oh, well, there's a store just you know about 100 meters from where you're staying. You better get it there." And so I said, "Oh, I'll uh, I'll go get the nappies." Okay. It's like a yep. three-minute walk from the hotel lobby. I made that walk last for 15 minutes. <laughs> I managed to just like get into the lobby, sit down, watch five minutes, get up, walk to the store. Didn't just like browse the store for about five minutes with the phone in my hand, buy the thing, come back, stop in the lobby again, watch another five minutes, see the Saints finally get up. And once that was the big relief for me, look, I'm, I'm glad Labor's in and ScoMo's out, but knowing that the Saints had secured a victory on the road, <laughs> that was a bigger win for me. So I'm staying, uh, you said, like it looked like it was a nice hotel. It's kind of a hotel mm. apartment. It's somewhere between a fancy hotel and somewhere between like a service department is kind yep. of the vibe of it. And it is the Alex Perry oh, yes, I've hotel and apartments. Have you stayed here before? Yes, and many times. The, That's where it, the cast of The Young Rock were staying. When I told that story about seeing all these enormous bodybuilders, that they were staying at the Alex Perry. In fact, it was all Americans when well, I was staying there. It makes sense. It's kind of the sort LA. of like if you had a, a big cast of people, you would definitely go because it... It's got a nice vibe, but it's not like a super yeah. posh hotel. Like, you know, it's like a four-star hotel. And, um, but it is quite nice. But I, I didn't know that I was staying here. I hadn't really checked. I just, you know, like the tour books accommodation and I, you know, stay there. I, I don't pay any attention. So when I got here, I was like, oh, I'm staying at the Alex Perry, like hotel and apartments. Now, they're named the Alex Perry Hotel and Apartments. What would be your understanding of what would what do you think the involvement of Alex Perry in it? Is it just a branding thing, or would he own like some part of the hotel and apartments? How do you think? Like, is there a chance there could be like a a Will Anderson Apartments? Like, is that a deal that someone might come to me and say, "Hey, we think that like you know there's enough people out there in the market who would." Because I guess the idea is that he's had something to do with the design of it, right? Isn't yeah. that? Yeah. 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 I'd say that he probably has like a percentage share of ownership. I wouldn't say like an outright or an equal percentage, but they would say, hey, uh, we'd like to use your brand. And then I reckon there'd be a stylistic component, which is like, can you run your eye over the design, the layout, all this kind of stuff and, and, and give your, your go ahead? Well, I have like told the story in the podcast, I think probably more than once, you know, because it's an old story. But after the, Logies one year when I had you know gone and fucked it up and the cameras were waiting to take photos of me I lingered in the food court a little longer so that they would clear away and I could go down and get my suitcase and I picked up my suitcase and I took it home and it opened it up and it turns out it wasn't actually my suitcase that someone else had already taken my suitcase and that person was Alex Perry and I had Alex Perry's suitcase and we went through Alex Perry's suitcase and took his Valium and then returned his suitcase and I know that I've told that story publicly. And then so when I moved in here, I started worrying. I was like, imagine if he's been this playing the be long here. game. Apparently, imagine yeah. if this is the time that I get the payback, that some shit goes down at the Alex Perry Hotel. It'd be amazing if like every room had an anti-Will Anderson theme to it. Yeah. Like he knew somehow that you'd done it. And there's just like a giant mural of like your head on a pike. Exploding. Or something Kim like Jong-un that. Kim Jong-un style. Yeah. yeah. Or just like, there was Carl Barron. There's just Carl Barron and Adam Hill's <laughs> yeah. framed photos everywhere. Every room. They called it the Comedy Hotel. And there was just photos of every comedian but me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when Sam Newman bought that place in Melbourne? I think it was on, not Beaconsfield Parade. Uh, whatever that road is, it runs from Fitzroy Street to through Albert Park. And it was a big Pamela Anderson face do you remember that did yes, you ever see that house that he bought that. is there been a more short-sighted uh design feature <laughs> than plastering pamela anderson's face i mean i guess maybe you know what if you play the long game it'll come around right she'll become kitsch and that's like you know maybe not a marilyn monroe but it's it's well, it, they had the, like they had the pam and tommy series, series which is really good that, i must yeah, admit so i mean i think I think that Pamela Anderson now, because times have changed mm. and there isn't really Pamela Anderson's anymore, right? I kind of feel like she's a bit immortal now. Yeah. Because she was 
almost the last iconic of her type. Yes. Like of her... Pin-up. So I think... Yeah, so I think that when people like... You know, like people don't really talk about Samantha Fox because like, you know, Pamela Anderson and people like that came after Samantha Fox. But I feel like Pamela Anderson was the last of that pin-up type and therefore there is something about her that just gets to live on because yeah. you're like the last version of... You know, like you can still buy like, you know, a, a, like a, a different version of a Mustang now, right? There's a, there's a modern version of a Mustang. Yeah. But when people think about the Mustang, they mm. think about that old traditional muscle car Mustang. Like, I think that like Pamela Anderson is one of those iconic Mustangs. Yes. Like, you know, like you just remember that era and that person and they were so iconic of that era. Well, I guess it's the term sex symbol, which isn't really used right. anymore. Like if you had like Farrah, Fo- if you think about what teenage boys had on their wall in through over the decades, like it's sort of Farrah Fawcett, maybe Brooke Shields, and then Pamela Anderson. You're you're right because after that we shifted into like reality, that became the kind of major entertainment currency, and so it was then like Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian and all those kind of figures. But they're not really, they're different, aren't they? Because I mean, why are they different? But you don't. There were no posters of. Paris Hilton or Kim Kardashian where you would actually I think also now there's so much choice to I mean there would have been a generation of young men Mm. who had a lot of their sexual development like shaped around Pamela Anderson because not only was she on TV in a bikini but she was in magazines in like revealing clothes and like she like yeah, had pinups. Like, literally, you could buy posters of her. Mm. Like, you know, that, like, it was kind of acceptable for a teenage boy to have on their wall, like, a picture mm. of Pamela Anderson. And this is all pre, pre-internet, pre-porn. Mm. So, there was this ubiquity. Like, in the same way as, like, 70 million people had watched an episode of MASH because there wasn't streaming services and all these other things to watch. There was this idea that a whole generation of men had aspects of their sexuality framed around this one person rather than in this day and age where that one person is probably a thousand different people. And they're not Pamela Anderson. They're probably like Riley Reid or like some, I don't even know who like a popular porn star's name is to be able to name them. But like now, if you're a teenage boy, you could like have an iconic porn star that you follow on like, you know, line yeah. rather, than, rather than it being Pamela who was just like a sexy actress. She wasn't like a porn star. Yeah. it's Well, the media's changed, right? Like we've gone from uh, like, uh, uh, I guess, hard, <laughs> no pun intended. Like we've gone from like physical media, magazines and so forth to digital media. So like you wouldn't, I mean, literally there's, I, I have often wondered like, do teenagers have posters on their walls anymore? Because it seems archaic. Like I, when you go into the news agent, are there TV hits and, like, you know, where do you get your posters from? I used to actually go to, like, a record store where they had, like, a like a poster section, big cardboard that you would sort through and you could get band posters and pinups and cars or athletes, whatever you wanted. Like, I, I bought... Because I, I think back to what I had on my wall as a teenager and there was, like, a Michael Jordan... Um, I think I had a... I think I had a Paula Abdul poster at one point, <laughs> short-lived. Uh, but, like, I had, like, Jordan... Um, did I have other girls? I had Pearl Jam... Um, I can't think if I had any like Pamela Anderson, but I definitely had like girls, women pinned up on the wall. But that was stuff that I had to go out and like literally buy, like proper proper posters. But these days, do kids even do that, or do they just project it? Is it three D now? Are they holograms? <laughs> like, what do kids put on their on their walls these days? Yeah, or is I it naff? I don't know. Like, nor should we know what is going on in... <laughs> yeah, no. Imagine if I had, like, an expert, like, very <laughs> detailed... Yeah. yeah, I was like, I can tell you exactly. Well, I, look, we did stay with friends uh, on the way to WA. We stayed with friends in Brisbane on um, Friday night. And they've got two teenage daughters. And one of the daughters, uh, we stayed in her bedroom. She went to the spare room. And she had nothing. She had artwork on her wall. She had, like, a couple of framed sort of arty photos. I think something she'd even taken. And... Yeah, no, there was no, you know, handsome 
<laughs> there was no. I was trying to think of who's like the who's a hunk from the nineties like uh, there was the Harry Jonathan Styles? Jonathan oh, Taylor no. oh, Thomas. Like Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> JTT. Who's probably forty five now? <laughs> I mean, it'd still be Leonardo DiCaprio, but imagine if it was just like updated Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. So it's just this like fat, fat middle aged man <laughs> with a beard, gross beard. Yeah, I wonder. She, I know that she, her big heartthrob. The she loves that Aussie artist. Um, oh, I'm going to get his name wrong. Is it Rule? Rules? Jar Rule? No, Jar Rule. I've, no, I, I think there's an uh, an Aussie singer. He's on like Triple J all the time. I think it's podcast. Mike, are you there? You're youth. You're young. Is there a is there an Aussie musician called Rule? I think it is Rule. Yeah. Okay. Good. It's pronounced Rule. <laughs> Some, yeah. Yeah. I know because. Because when she sort of started becoming, I've known these guys, uh, these, they've been friends of mine for ages. And and when she sort of became aware of what I did and what Gemma and I did for work, oh, that we might have proximity to famous people. She started asking oh. me a lot of questions about rule. Do yeah. I know do, rule? Like, do you know rule? Do you know, do you know can, where rule hangs out? <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, trust me, rule? the famous people that I'm friends with that I know, you wouldn't want to know. <laughs> also, none of them know who rule is. Like, <laughs> here's what I can tell you. I can ask many of my famous friends who rule is and they will not be able to tell me. <laughs> who was your, like when you were a teenager, who was like your the, the person that you fantasized about most or was like got your heart going? Um, It's hard to remember, but... I, I think probably, I think it was Winona Ryder, weirdly oh, yeah. enough. So. Yeah. What, is she's, re- what do they call the Manic Pixie Dream Girl? Yeah. 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 I mean, look, considering, yeah, like how the pattern of the rest of my life has already always turned out, I guess that probably makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I was the same person at 15 as I am at fucking 48. So I, there you go. I, know, I, I was big on Winona as well. In fact, I remember going to see Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a very like arty, sensual, almost European film. Like, there's a fair bit of boobs. And I think like Monica Bellucci plays one of the vampire demons in that. And, you know, there's a lot of just... But Winona is wearing a lot of kind of like slinky... Uh, sexy outfits I remember there's one scene where she's running through the rain in like a sheer nighty and as like a 14 year old or whatever I was I remember seeing that and being like <laughs> like yeah. and I went You're to like, sc- more, more like dick strokers <laughs> <laughs> but I went to school and I told my mates I was like oh you've got to see this new Dracula movie like we're not writers in it and she's in a wet t-shirt and so I went back to see it again with my mates who were all expecting to see like you know softcore porn they weren't prepared for a fairly cerebral, you know, erotica in a version of, of Francesca Kostraki. And they were so mad at me. They were like, you could barely see anything. You couldn't see anything. My, my dick was, wasn't hard for hardly any of the movie. It was just confused most of the time. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, you I confused my right dick. Now, for, for sure. Like there's. I mean, I think this might have been even first year uni, like, but I, but I remember that first time I saw Reality Bites, and there's that scene of her, like, walking down that corridor in that sort of see-through top, and like, it's like still iconically in my mind. It's like, <laughs> and I remember early on where I think part of the reason that I was like I, I, I might like go into show business was there was just part of me that like had heard that we were known to write a lot of like dating people who were in show business like if you're in a band or whatever you <laughs> yeah, have right. a chance to like date Winona Ryder and I was like well if only I because I would look at like Adam Duritz or whatever from the Counting Crows and go he's not a good looking cat <laughs> like he's just good at so obviously she's more like into what they do than what they look for so I thought well that's achievable maybe I could do something and then when Nona Ryder would like it would catch her attention and like and like all I'm saying is not too late <laughs> still could happen <laughs> probably better chance now than ever really yeah right it is funny I was thinking about that myself the other day about um, you know being a teenager and just like I wasn't very good with girls and you know my way in which hasn't changed that much is I'd try and be funny you know oh I'll charm them I'll make them laugh and and as a teenager that doesn't cut it <laughs> that's no. not what they're looking for like because they have their own you know dreams and fantasies about the kind of boys that they want to be with and stuff and they're not there's no posters of you know like comedians on their walls and so I couldn't understand why they'd always go for like the 
dickbag at my school who was like good looking and good at sport and stuff. But yeah, he wasn't funny. He didn't know the young ones off by heart. Why, why, why is she hanging out with him? But then it's like, oh yeah, of course, man. Of course they wouldn't. Like, what are you offering them that is even vaguely related to what they're interested in? Well, but also, and, and vice versa. Like, you're doing the version of something that might be interesting to them in 10 years or 20 years when they, you know, like, d- discover that, like, somebody they can hang out with and laugh with and those sort of things is much more important than perhaps those, you know, those other superficial things. But you're also a teenager. Like, yeah. you're also, all your things are superficial things. Yeah. So you're not, like, if they're doing something cool, like they've got some quirky thing or whatever. Like I, I don't remember being a teenager and going like I'm I'm really into Joanne because like she's so good at stamp collecting and I just admire her passion. For it, <laughs> yeah, <know>? exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was also like you know there's a couple of girls that we were friends with that were dating older boys, guys who had left school, you know, maybe first second year uni, and I was always like, oh fucking, that's you know those guys are gross and what are they doing? But then. You get out of high school and you look back at teenage boys and you're like, oh, fuck, no wonder. Like, if that's what you had to choose from, or a guy who could drive, maybe had a job, could take you to nice things, you know, didn't just want to talk about the young ones. <laughs> I mean, that, when I was in year 12, I, I went out with this, like, really lovely girl called Beth English. And she was, um, so we started going out when I was in year 11 and she was in year 12, I believe. And then she, um, ended up uh, like going away to uni and I was in year 12 but we were like dating and it was great because she would like come and pick me up from school in a car and like all these sort of things but I I always was like this is great for me but what is in this for you (laughs) like this is your I I feel like I am not bringing much to this relationship that is interesting isn't it because you often the reverse you never really question it and you think oh well because girls mature faster than guys and it does sort of make a, a lot of sense but then on the occasion where it's like a woman in her mid-twenties and she's dating a guy who's just out of high school, you're like, this seems weird. Unless this dude is incredibly sophisticated, what's going on here? Right. <laughs> Were you incredibly sophisticated? No, I don't think so. I don't think I've ever been incredibly sophisticated, so it'd be surprising if I was in year 11. You're doing your dissertation of the young ones. I'm there quoting it, but you're going, well, the interesting thing about uh, the young ones is it's really just a deconstruction of the uh, uh, post-Thatcher environment for university students. (laughs) And then they're all like, you're too too smart. Devolve a little bit. If you want to be relatable, you're really going to have to dumb it down a bit, mate. Well, it's funny, um, Podcast Mike is my uh, uh, guest on, on Fofop this week, and we had, it was a very great chat. Um, uh, but we did talk a little bit about the new Jackass film, and I was saying to him uh, that uh, I love Jackass and have watched all of them. And this new one, I, I enjoyed. There was a lot of stuff I couldn't watch because it's just a bit too gross. I'm, I love all the kind of dumb stunts. I'm not a, so hot on the vomiting and the shit and all that kind of gross kind of stuff. But I do love that every time there is a new Jackass thing, there is a portion of the audience that are like, oh, it's jackass. It's funny. I'm going to watch this. But then there is like, there's a writer for the New York Times or Rolling Stone who does this kind of jackass, an analysis of masculinity in the 21st century. And you're like, uh, I think you're granting it maybe a bit too much depth to it. I really, I honestly think the guys doing jackass know what jackass is, but you were trying to justify why you enjoy watching jackass. I, yeah, I know what you mean. Absolutely. I do know what you mean, but I watched it. The latest one. And you know how what I'm like with vomiting and stuff like mm. that. That is not my cup of tea at all. But I did feel like as a piece of entertainment in the times in which we live, whether they mean it to be or not, it it felt really relevant to the times. <laughs> That's what I would say. I would just say in the same way as Hannah Gadsby didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write in a net a thing that will hit the world at the time where the world is having a conversation about the very thing that I'm having a conversation about. She didn't like plan that out. She just made a piece of art that was really important to her. And then the times just suited that piece of art. So look, yes, I am comparing Jackass to Nanette. And this is my thousand word piece (laughs) from the New York Times op-ed page. No, but I think that it is like there was, there is something about it because for me, I, I loved it. I honestly laughed so much. Mm. But I also think that in these times where there is so much chaos in the world in which we live and the reaction that chaos 
often feels very nihilistic and to laugh in the absurdity of life, you know, to be able to have to... That, that what they do on that show does feel like it is a deconstruction of that and it also feels like the last bastions of old school masculinity mm. and dumbness and these things that have led to... Like, that. this is kind of fun and dumb, but the world has become like that but in a serious way you know that our information is dumb and that like dumbness is celebrated in a way that it used to be sidelined to going this is a dumb thing and to see those male friendships develop and people be broken down a little by life and Mm. hurt more Mm. by life and to be able to see them try to redo something they'd been able to do in their youth and not necessarily be able to do it in the same way. The Johnny Knoxville, not to give a spoiler, the Johnny Knoxville stunt at the end, like I was genuinely upset. (laughs) Like I just, because of his age, because of how violent it was, like Gemma and I both were like, oh, oh no. It was was upsetting and I was kind of like... What, what do you got to prove, mate? Like, you don't need to play. I think I would have enjoyed the film just as much, but I think there was... No, but an... see, but, uh, that you're coming from a guy who's put his neck out reading a book. <laughs> this is... <laughs> you're not the guy to ask. But I, I, I agree. It feels like there is more stakes on the line. Mm. And so on all of those levels, I really did... Like, I agree that I don't think that the guys from Jackass get together and go, we're going to make this huge statement on the times in which we live. But... Do I think that somehow they've just managed to what they are captures a whole bunch of like you know, things about the world in which we live? I do think that that is the case. I don't think it's just dumb stunts. I think that there is this uh, kind of story to well, it. And in fact, I enjoy it a lot more now than I did when it first came out. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think there's an awful lot of creativity in what mm-hmm. they do. And obviously the minds behind it. Like it's not just pointless. There is an element of, you know, saying something but it's more in the same way that like if you look at the way modern masculinity is represented by say like joe rogan's audience or you know that sort of rogan phenomena and you're right it's very self-serious like it's kind of there's an element of cruelty to it and alpha-ness to it and if you're overweight or you're different or you're shit then that's a flaw and you need to improve that and you've just you, you got it you're a weak bitch and you need to work harder to improve whereas jackass embrace that if you're overweight or you're a bit slow or whatever we love you no matter what if you're one of us we love you but if you're one of us you're going to do this dumb thing because we're all idiots yeah. in the way and i think that but that to me is baked into who those guys are i don't necessarily think, think it's a conscious decision they just sort of play to what that like I think I can't remember if it was this show or or two guys one cup where we talked about male friendship there's a large element of bullying (laughs) to male friendship like it's how we say we love each other you know it's how we bond you know and we all understand that when it's your turn you're the target of the bullying like that's I was was saying to Jen the other day because um she made fun of me in front of um uh friends of ours the other day and and then I was like oh hey like you know I don't make fun of you in the same way why did you make fun of me and she's gone because that's what you do to yourself and i see you do with your guy friends i'm just doing what you and i'm like yeah i guess you're right i just wasn't expecting it to come like i wasn't armored and ready for it to come from you i thought it was like you know i was in my safe space with you but then to hear you make fun of me is like oh uh, but that is kind of what male friendship is like there's just a large element of identifying someone's flaws making fun of that flaws but accepting them accepting of them because of those flaws yeah, I mean, I think that the greatest part of it is it, it, what you've said, is that it is really genuinely a show about people who are absolutely flawed and are almost, you know, showing off their flaws and their imperfections. Like, it, anyway, I really fucking enjoyed it, and I'm yeah. going to write an op-ed piece. <laughs> <laughs> have you listened to any of Steve-O's podcast, Wild Ride with no. Steve-O? It's really good. No, I have not. I mean, like, if you can get over his the tone of his voice, which... I don't can, think I can. Can be grating. But he's very he's a really good, surprisingly good interviewer in that he doesn't put himself into the story. Like he does occasionally will bring up our story, but he's really, really good at bringing people on. And it's an odd collection of famous people, like not, you know, super famous people, but people who have, like he had Corey Feldman on and I was like, oh boy, like I want to hear some of this stuff. And it was really interesting he allows, like, Corey Feldman's obviously had this terrible, terrible childhood, you know, like, his parents are really awful to him, and obviously he got into drugs when he was very young, but everything that sort of happened to that 
happened to him after that. There is this element of detached. I guess there was a point round about his late teens, early twenties, where he sort of detached from reality a little bit. He divorced mm. from his parents. That ripped him off financially. He'd been exploited by managers and people who were meant to look after him. And so he did create this world for himself. You know, the Corey Feldman, when he, where he got his angels and stuff. But then, because he created this little Kim Jong Un style oasis, there are large elements of paranoia that come with that. So. He started talking about like, oh, you know, they're sending, you know, one of the angels that they sent to my house was a spy and she was a spy from this cabal of people. who And look, I don't know, maybe, mm. maybe it's an element to truth of it or whatever, but there. She wasn't one of Ian Thorpe's undercover angels. <laughs> no, she me. definitely wasn't an undercover angel. He, but Steve-O is really good at, it's not the, like, you know, when Rogan has on like an Alex Jones or something, there is an element of permission to everything. Like, he's not challenged on anything. Whereas Steve-O does challenge, but not in a way that is, I'm going to humiliate you or you're wrong or whatever. It's like, okay, but if you're saying that this person was like, I don't know, a CIA informant or whatever, then how does that track with all these things? And so you're sitting there going, is that Steve-O? <laughs> like Steve-O being an investigative journalist here? But it's really, I would encourage you to listen to it. They're really, like, you got to, it's kind of like Joe Rogan. You've got to pick the guests because obviously some of them you're not going to gel with. But he's actually really, really good at, at podcasting and it sounds like he's making a lot of money from it, which annoys me to a, to a certain degree. Like, how come Steve-O is making money from this thing now that he's only just adopted two years ago? Well, I mean, it's good that the guy from Jackass is a better investigative journalist than the guy from... <laughs> the world that we live in yes. See, this is what i mean though this is the jackass world i do think that like you know that aspect of masculinity that is represented in jackass the worst aspects of it are the worst aspects of that bro culture and mm. the best aspects of it are the thing that are compelling about that bro culture the rogan isn't the biggest podcast in the world if there isn't something yeah, genuinely appealing and compelling about what it is he does and the club that you get to join if you're a Rogan fan. And it's only the the excesses of it. I mean, did you see that interview that went around this week yeah. where he was talking about how you, you, you can't know, grow your food they're banning growing food in Australia? <laughs> yeah. And like, he, you talk about bullying and being mean. That voice he's doing when he's impersonating <laughs> the person who's basically doesn't exist. Food. The fictional, just, the fictional well, bureaucrat. Been, yeah. That they yeah that they finally Google and realize it's not a real story and so but I was like yeah but you did make them sound like an idiot you're right that person yeah. you invented <laughs> they did sound like a real idiot when you were making them sound like an idiot my favorite part of that was his guest who I, I'm not really sure who that guy is but at the very end tries to bail Joe out going like yeah yeah it's fake but it's a warning right it's a warning yeah. about what could happen <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's, no no not really it's not. It's not a real thing. Because a warning would warning suggest there was that an... people can spread misinformation. That's the only warning. <laughs> to go back to um, uh, the interview, so it, the the plot of the interview is that there's this really vain TV talk show host who, uh, in order to boost his ratings, goes to interview Kim Jong Un, and the CIA approach him and say, "Hey, well, while you're there, maybe you can assassinate him because that will make the world a better place." And this talk show host goes over there, but. When he meets Kim Jong-un, this like, you know, dictator, discovers that, oh, I quite like this guy. We, we sort of agree on a lot of things. And then it becomes conflicted about. And so that was, you know, made in 2014, like four years before, well, the three, uh, two years before Donald Trump got elected. And he was saying that the, the thing that um, he was, if he was like, if the film had come out in 2018, like if we'd made it after Donald Trump, because the head of the studio, head of Sony was this big Obama guy and and uh, uh, and, and was like, well, we can't release this because it's going to cause, you know, too many diplomatic issues or, or whatever. But if it had come out after Donald Trump had been president, it's essentially the same story because that's what happened with Donald Trump. Donald Trump was like, little rocket boy, we're going to blow North Korea off the map. Then they have a meeting of some kind and all of a sudden he's in love with him. He's like, we're this best guy. friends. He's I writing you love guy. letters. But the best part about that story was he said that, so the studio convinces them, look, you're going to have to, we're going to, you're going to have to cut all these scenes and you're going to have to obscure the bit where he gets his head blown off. But when you're doing the press tour, you can't say, we made you do it. You have to say it was your idea. And mm -hmm. So Rogan and Evan is... Uh, Which is the sort of thing that you 
say when you're doing something like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're going to cover this up, but you definitely can't tell people that we told you to cover this up. And also, you can't tell people that we told you that you couldn't tell people to cover it up. And also, while I'm at it, you can't tell people about this conversation. Yeah, exactly. So they agreed to it on, on, on you know, in principle. And so then he yeah. said at the premiere... For a bit. <laughs> he went to the premiere and um, halfway through the premiere, he took two... MDMA capsules and so he said he was like rolling pretty hard when the credits came up and he said the audience seemed to enjoy it and he went to the after party but then something happened some news came out there was like death threats and then all these theatre chains were saying we're not going to show the film so there's this huge disaster and so he's like oh fuck this so he went home went to sleep and then before he went to bed he texted the head of the studio and was like we've got to talk in the morning I'm so fucking pissed off and fired up about Mm -hmm. you pulling the movie and so he went to bed woke up the next morning if he was 100% high the night before, he reckons he's about 60% the next morning when he woke up. So he's like, I'll have a coffee. I'll get my head straight. I'll drive into the studio. But he said driving into the studio is getting so riled up that then the adrenaline started to make the drugs work again. So when he went into the office to confront the head of the studio, he was, high. He was really high again. And so he said to them, look, all right, if you're going to pull the movie, there's no incentive for me now to cover for you so I'm not going to lie like you know I'm going to when I do the press I'm going to say you fucked the movie you made us cut a bunch of stuff out and this is not this is not the version we wanted and he and he's saying but the whole experience is horrible and traumatic the only thing that made it better was that he was high on MDMA (laughs) I mean I think that that is like a fun way to live your life yes you know as in and when it when it works out. Yes. When it works out, that is a fun way to live your life. It is also a great fun way to end your career if it doesn't yeah. work out. And that is the the risk that you're taking in those situations. But yeah, there's a few times in my life where I was like going through some shit situation where I would have been like, I should have just taken a bunch of mushrooms and come in and <laughs> dealt with this today. At least well, it would have been a thing. Well, that's the, uh, I guess that's the thing about that I gleaned most from the book is that pretty much every significant career opportunity he had was aided by or under the influence of some kind of drugs but again it's a question of is he abusing them or is it's just you know the, the analogy he uses which I thought was interesting is that look you know we used to walk around without any shoes on then we're like ow like this hurts our feet we need to protect our feet so we can walk around more and make life easier so we invented shoes he's like my brain doesn't cope in the world the way it is. I need to wrap something around my brain to make life easier so I can get through life and feel more comfortable. It doesn't affect anyone else. It doesn't hurt anyone else. So what's yep. the problem? <laughs> I was and like, yeah, I... drugs are shoes for your brain. <laughs> speaking, speaking my language, man. Like that is the, the sort of thought you could only come up with on drugs. <laughs> hey, dude, I've got it. Drugs are shoes for your brain. Let me talk you through it. So originally we didn't wear shoes. <laughs> now, well, we're going to have to do a shorter episode uh, okay, this yes. week because you and I have places to be and things to do. I've got to get a photo in front of the Nicky Winmar statue. Uh, I've got to do two improvised stand-up shows in a row. Uh, so I thought I'd end with just one bit of correspondence, which mm-hmm. is a bit long, but I think it's worthwhile okay. to go through. Uh, the requested complete anonymity. Okay. So we'll refer to this person as Listener X. Listener Although we have X. referred to other listeners as Listener X. Does that make it confusing? Okay. Do you think TOEFOP audience will confuse one Listener X for another Listener X? Let's call them Listener X, but it's spelled E-X. So okay. just remember when we're saying it, All right. this is Listener X. Okay. Not an ex-listener, but Listener X. This is from Listener E-X. X. A greetings, Will and Charlie. I stumbled across TOEFOP during the depths of the first COVID wave in the UK. As an Aussie living in London, working in the NHS, I figured it was the right demographic for Australia's number one podcast for medical professionals. I am not a doctor, but hopefully you consider an allied health professional to be a suitably qualified listener. Yes, you're uh, absolutely in. Absolutely welcome. Absolutely. Will can't clap because he's sitting on his couch. I'm, I'm patting my chest. Like, it's kind of giving a dull thud, but I'm patting my chest at the moment. Oh, you can hear your you voice can... going. You're kind of doing that. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Oh, Hang on. This is for you in the NHS. <laughs> there you go. As recommended, I started with the latest episodes and worked my way back. The Bin Trilogy got me through some dark days during lockdown, and even the questionable content of the earlier shows had me chuckling on my commute. 
commute, 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 come a communist. <laughs> oh no, what have I read? <laughs> uh, cut to 2021 and I was unfortunately diagnosed with cancer. I was oh. always pretty, I was already pretty burnt out from the stress of being a frontline worker during COVID. My diagnosis was the icing on the shitty pandemic cake. During the border restrictions in Australia, it took several months for my parents to be able to fly out to come and help me. As you can imagine, it was not the best of times. In fact, it was the very worst of times. But there was some light in the darkness, and that's where you guys come in. I'm going to hold a special place in my heart for the Mr. Tickle episode for the rest of my life. (laughs) That stirring rendition of a questionable Mr. Men classic was genuinely the only thing that could make me laugh after the shock of finding out I needed chemo. Yeah, I was thinking maybe we could do a sequel to the uh, Mr. Men. I've been reading um, a lot of more Mr. Men. Iona loves them. And she, oh, it's the most annoying thing. On the back of a Mr. Men book, they have all the Mr. Men's. There's like 25 of them. And she makes me go through and name what each one is. But the Mr. Strong episode, I don't know. I think Mr. Strong, like he eats a lot of eggs. That's where he gets his power right. from. And I'm wondering if maybe there's some steroid abuse going on there as well. <laughs> Or at the very least, a lot of farts. Is there much talk about Mr. Strong's farting? No, there is not. Um, By the time I was recovering from my surgery, I had managed to convert my mum to the podcast as well. Welcome, Mrs. Mrs. X's mum. She's also a healthcare professional. Oh, okay. Sorry. I should have... Tap your chest. Uh... (laughs) So it was a natural fit. We both agree that the five banter has been unparalleled and hashtag is JOK. Charlie, please don't give up on your dream of replacing Jay for a gig. We have every faith you can get up on stage and turn three-fifths into four. Finally, I want to leave you with a story that may provide some non-five-related content. Okay. Recently, a friend told me about an experience one of her mates had while flat-sharing. As soon as I heard the tale, I knew that I needed to hear the TOEFOP take. The subject is pasta fighting. Will, do you want to take a punt on what pasta fighting is before we get into it? I mean, people who fight using pasta. The story takes place at 2am on a weeknight when the friend woke to the sound of loud clanging and thumping in their kitchen. Concerned about what was going on, she entered the room to find her flatmate had cooked large batches of spaghetti bolognese and was proceeding to throw it across the kitchen onto the walls and floor. When asked WTF was going on, the flatmate responded that she was having a bad day and needed to have a pasta fight to cool down. She was completely sober at the time and was apparently quite insistent that pasta fighting was a completely normal practice and that many people use it as a method of stress management. Comment? Uh, Well, so far, I would think that this is just a child whose parents have played a very elaborate prank on (laughs) (laughs) Like for 17 years, have been going, look, you're a bit angry, go into the kitchen... Cook some bolognese, put some aside for mum and dad, and then just use the rest of it for a pasta fight, really chill out. And mum and dad sit on the couch, they eat some bolognese, the kids in the kitchen, gets it out of their system with a little pasta fight. And it's at this moment they realise that this is not a thing that everybody else in the world does. I think you're half right. I think mum and dad thought they were home alone. Mum's making a big bowl of pasta. Dad comes up behind her. They get a bit frisky. They're making loud noises. Things are clattering. The pasta goes flying. The kids walk in at the conclusion of it as mum and dad are getting dressed and they're like, what's going on? What happened? They're like, oh, oh, we were pasta fighting. Mum and daddy were pasta fighting. You know what? You're 100%. That is is exactly what it sounds like, pasta fighting, because it's not a real thing, but it would be a great cover story for like, yeah, some in-kitchen sexual shenanigans that have been busted by the children. And you're just like, what are you guys doing in here? We were pasta fighting. You know, it's a normal thing. In the cold light of day, the flatmate continued to maintain that pasta fighting is legit. Food wasted aside, Charlie, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on how you would have responded in this scenario. Is pasta fighting a thing? No, it's not a thing. Her parents were having sex. That is my 100% watertight conclusion. Uh, thank you for all the last boys. You've helped me through the darkest time of my life. I'm nearly at the end of the tunnel and I couldn't have done it without you. Keep up the great work. Cheers. I do want to Which, see the cover uh, version. Everybody was pasta fighting. Uh, <laughs> if you want to uh, go. 
Listener X has signed off with Jay, and then in brackets, not the Jay, of course. Hashtag, where are you, Jay? Jay, uh, so uh, happy to hear that you're almost through. It must be a tremendously challenging time you've been through, and uh, I'm really glad that we could have been in some small way an assistance in you battling cancer. And please write in again and let us know how you're doing because I, I would love to know. Um, and let us know if you get into a pasta fight. In fact, maybe don't. <laughs> let us know if you get into a pasta fight. Hopefully you meet a nice man or a girl. And you can pasta fight here's, in private. Well, here's what I would like to know: is is pasta fighting a thing? Like, I mean, can we find out? If, All right. In fact, let's just quickly before we go. I know that we both have extra things to do, but let's just Google pasta fighting. Okay. And just see if anything comes up. Like, you know, because maybe we just where the ears. Pasta fighting. Um, uh, when your parents fuck in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a thing. All the pasta okay. fights are about cooking competitions where they're cooking pasta okay. against each other. So if anybody out there has heard of pasta fighting, or maybe this like person has found mm. somebody to pasta fight with themselves and has finally realized <laughs> maybe that they found their <laughs> lovely person and they were in the kitchen and they finally were like, ah, I get it now. <laughs> If you want to support the show or all our shows, uh, the best way to do that is at Patreon, tofop.com slash Patreon. Uh, we put up a special bonus episode last week where we answer more of your questions. Uh, if you've got no money to give us, that's fine. You can support us just by listening to the shows. Uh, you can listen to Two Guys, One Cup on Listener. That'd be a great way to support the show because the, the our bosses at Listener, if they see more people signing up and listening to our show, they want to keep us on for longer, which means we get money, which means we can keep doing all the other shows that don't pay us as much. Uh, on Fofop this week, I mentioned... Podcast Mike came back on. Great chat. Uh, Podcast Mike has his own podcast, 20th Century Boy, which I misnamed 21st Century Digital Boy, thinking it was the Bad Religion (laughs) song, and Harry Potter and the Boys, which is, you don't have to be a Harry Potter fan to listen to that podcast. Uh, It's it's awesome. So, uh, oh, Mike, why don't you just pop on and and, and you plug the faux fop. Did you enjoy it this week? Yeah, had a great time uh, chatting. We chatted a lot of different pop culture things. Well, we we did try and get talking on Jackass. I'm so glad, Will, because we, we tried, but you admitted straight away that you knew nothing about Jackass. So we kind of, we veered off that topic. So we, we, yeah. we delve into a bit of Jackass, but I'm glad Will was able to get into a bit more in depth into Jackass. Yeah, never seen Jackass before, but we did talk a lot about <laughs> um, the human centipede, which is a fantastic yeah. uh well, not a fantastic horror film, but a, a fantastic story, I guess. Yeah. But, yeah, but it turns out that not only is a podcast Mike a big Harry Potter fan, he's a big centipede fan as well. I mean, the film's not the practice. I can't wait for his fan fiction, Harry Potter and the Human Centipede. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> one, There's one, a podcast One that final needs adventure to for Harry. <laughs> uh, Will, you got shows to promote? Uh, I don't. In fact, I don't oh. think that I do. I might be all done. Um, I'm not all done. There's going to be more shows. I am looking at some dates in Darwin and Canberra and I'm hoping there'll be some other places as well, but none of them are locked in uh, officially. So no, no shows to promote. Oh, my television show is back in a couple of weeks, but um, uh, Gruen Nation, the two episodes we did before the election are still up on ABC iView if you want to check those out. You should check them out. Uh, But for now, I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Will Anderson. This podcast is a TOEFOP production. Head to TOEFOP.com for more. Cool things for cool people.